The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Well, I want you to think for a moment, when in your life has there been a situation where you have been the most afraid? Uh, maybe it was there was, a, there was a health scare. Maybe you were involved in, in a natural disaster of, of some uh, sort. Maybe it was an accident. Maybe uh, it was imminent danger from either a person or uh, a wild animal or something like that. Maybe, it, maybe it's hard to put your, uh, your finger on it. I know for me it, 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 it's hard to do that because uh, there have been a lot of times that I've been very terrified. When I was a young kid, uh, I was terrified any time that there was a tornado watch in my area. I would cower in fear in the basement. Or maybe it was the time that I almost drowned in Bush Lake. Or maybe uh, it, it's, it was the irrational fear of heights that I have had throughout my life, uh, especially when trying to go on the power tower at Valley Fair and you have a young child laughing at you because you're a grown adult and they can handle it and you can't. Maybe it was the time when I was nearly hit by a car. Maybe it was the time that I hydroplaned uh, over the Minnesota River. But if I were to put a finger on the time that I was probably the most fearful, it would have been probably the time that I waited for medical results. Shortly after 
uh, Julie and I had, uh, had gotten married, I unintentionally lost a substantial amount of weight in a very short time. My, my face was sunken in. My, uh, my body had just basically turned into uh, it, it, its frame. There was really nothing left. People were concerned that I had cancer. And so I can, I can empathize with, with many of you who have gone through a lot of different medical tests because I have gone through almost every medical test that I could, uh, I could think of off the top of, of my head. But uh, what I found that was going to the specialists and going through those tests weren't all that scary in and of themselves. They were, they were slightly or sometimes more than slightly uncomfortable, but they weren't really scary. What was, what was really scary was waiting for uh, the news of what, what, what's, what's going on. And I'm glad that WebMD and Wikipedia wasn't really a thing uh, back then because uh, our, our, our brains and our curiosity can really get the best of us, right? I mean, we can find a diagnosis for any symptom that we have and, and get overly fearful of it. We have no lack of reasons to be anxious and fearful in our world. However, God tells us that there is an antidote to our fear. It's 100% effective and it's available to everyone. And if we choose to take on this antidote, we can live lives that are free from fear and anxiety of the future. In fact, if we take uh, this antidote, there is nothing that life can throw at us and we can be characterized by peace, comfort, and joy. And the antidote to fear is the knowledge of God. And in Psalm 27, David shows us a few different ways in which we can take on the knowledge of God for ourselves. Psalm 27 is what scholars call a psalm of confidence. Uh, The inscription at the beginning of the psalm gives us absolutely no hint as to David's particular situation that he was facing when he uh, when he wrote this, uh, this psalm, but one thing that we can be certain of is that David knew the secret of standing strong in the face of fear and adversity, and he imparts his wisdom and his experiences to us. And so there are three things that we need to take upon ourselves today, and the first is, is that we need to trust Jesus. We need to trust Jesus. In verse 1, David provides two metaphors for what the Lord is to him. He's a light, and he is a stronghold. They are very simple uh, descriptions with powerful implications. You know, at our house, I'm the last one to go to bed. And what that typically means uh, is uh, that uh, before I go to bed, I will secure the house. I will go and make sure all the vehicles are inside. I will... Um, most of the time, make sure that the toys in the front yard are not sitting out so they don't get stolen or anything like that, although not all the time. Um, I will go around and lock all the doors, and there are some times when I am uh, just about ready to hop into bed, or maybe I've already gotten into bed, and I remember that I, I think I forgot to check something. And so I, I will get out of bed and I will go and, uh, you know, maybe it was a dishwasher, maybe it was something like that. And it's times like that that I'm very, very thankful that the engineers at Google put these things. Sure, I could flip on a light, but that's too much work, right? Um, I'm glad that we have the, these flashlights here because there might be Hot Wheels on the stairs. 
There might be glossy books laying on the floor, which are very slippery. Uh, Our cat has a tendency uh, at the beginning of the night to sit at the top of the stairs. And if I don't see her at the top of the stairs, it could be a very bad night for both her and for me. And so uh, this light then is a provision of protection that alerts me to the dangers that are all around me. Uh, David says that the Lord is his light. The Lord provides illumination, not only to what is uh, true, but he also shines a light on those areas of our hearts and our lives that are, that are infected with darkness. It provides us with a moral compass so that we can avoid the, the, the pitfalls that, that often come with living in a fallen world. So it's in that sense, then, that David calls the Lord his salvation. Jesus' sinless life and his sacrificial death have not only put the batteries in the flashlight, but it also flips the switch on as well. It provides a vision that we had not seen before. It saves us from landmines that we might encounter on on the journey. And he does this by not shining light on the ground, but rather shining light on himself. For it is when we see Jesus in his glory and we see Jesus in his goodness, life seems to start making sense. He is our light and our salvation. But David also, notice, calls him his stronghold. Now, I'm going to be honest. I had to look up the definition of this word stronghold because in, in the evangelical church or just really in, in uh, Protestant uh, Christianism, the definition is that word is thrown around a lot, particularly in charismatic circles and in relation to spiritual warfare. It usually has a negative connotation. You might hear people say something like, oh, this has got a stronghold in my life and I need to break this stronghold or, uh, you know, I got this stronghold that's holding on to me and, and uh, it's, gotta, it's gotta go away. And it's almost analogous to, uh, to like a restraint or a chokehold or a death grip or something like that. But here, it doesn't seem like that at all. It seems pretty positive in, in this sense. And every translation that I, that I consulted all used the word stronghold to translate that, that Hebrew uh, word. And it turns out that that Hebrew word that David uses here literally means protection or refuge. In the ESV, uh, the word is translated in other parts of the Old Testament as fortress, as protection, it's used a couple times as a helmet. It's used for strength. It's used for refuge. And so that it's then that we can get a great picture of what the Lord is for those who trust in him. That when the fat hits the fire, we have a place that we can run to for protection. Now, I'm amazed that when I go into older buildings that still have a uh, fallout shelter sign on the wall. Uh, I'm amazed at, bec- uh, at that because uh, we were at one time certain that these fallout shelters would protect us from an atomic bomb. At least it was better than duck and cover. But even if, uh, if they were to work, it's hard to imagine 
the amount of time you would have had to have been in a fallout shelter before you could exit out into the world and not be exposed to toxic levels of, of radiation. I, I've, come to the re- I've come to the resolution that if, if an atomic bomb were to go off anywhere near us, get me to the ground zero of that atomic bomb as quickly as possible. Because there's just little hope if you're that close to it. If you're trusting in Jesus Christ decades from now, you're not going to look back on the signs of your faith and say, wow, that was a bad idea. That never would have worked. Because as we take refuge in Jesus, we will for eternity have safety and protection. We will spend an eternity with Jesus and never run out of supplies. Sure, the radiation from the world and the fallout from the world may be all around us, but in Christ we are buttoned up tight and nothing can touch us. That's why David says here in verse 1, Whom shall I fear? Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, you know, think about the, 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 the image of wild beasts there, and my adversaries, and, and for it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. Imagine the picture there for just a second. You're one person. uh, Maybe you're a soldier. Maybe you're just a, a normal civilian. And you are encircled around soldiers that are bent on getting rid of you. The odds aren't good. But yet David says here, Even if that were to happen, even if all my enemies are around me, even if all of my world comes crashing in on me, even if if people start hating me and I start losing friends and I start losing family and the life seems scary, I'm not going to be afraid because I know that God has my back. That's radical faith. That is what we are called to because we serve a big God who is capable of doing big things for little people. So we ought to trust Jesus in this way. Second of all, we need to pursue Jesus. We need to pursue Jesus. Verse four is perhaps the most famous verse of, of the psalm. And this is what David writes in verse 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. And we love this verse. I mean, what, what, what believer in Jesus Christ would not want this verse to be the defining uh, description of their lives? That they can be in the presence of God continuously, just gazing 
at his beauty. Last week, my, my family and I were up in, in uh, Grand Marais. I want to thank Dave for preaching last week, by the way. He did a great job. We were in Grand Marais, and we had the opportunity, I think, to go to every state park that we could. I think there was one close, but we, we went to every state park that we could. And uh, there was not one park that we hiked in that was not breathtakingly beautiful. Even when you're just walking through the woods and then you get out to these waterfalls and, and, and these rapids, it, it's absolutely stunning. And there's one particular part in which I went out to this rock that was a bit off the shore in the, in the Cascade River. It, it wasn't the river that my foot fell in, by the way. Uh, it was, uh, I, I stayed dry on this one. And uh, I sat down on the rock and I looked down and the river kind of bended but I just couldn't stop staring at this water that is flowing through pretty fast, hitting rocks and, uh, and creating rapids and all of those good things. And I can remember thinking, and I think even saying to Julie, I don't want to leave this place. I, I, I could sit on this rock all day uh, maybe not all night, but I could be there all, uh, all day. The scene is so powerful and so beautiful. I couldn't take my eyes off of it. And if I could, I'd be there right now taking it all in again. And, and as I see this, I'm reminded of the hymn, Fairest Lord Jesus, that says, Fair are the meadows, fairer still the woodlands, robed in the blooming garb of spring. And those things are fair. But yet, Jesus is fairer, the hymnist writes. Jesus is pure, who makes the woeful heart to sing. You see, the North Shore is probably my favorite place in the world. But scripture tells us that the beauty of the Lord is more stunning and more captivating than the most picturesque place on the planet. And so David does two things. And if we're honest with ourselves, many of us uh, couldn't say that we're in sync with David here. First, he says that he prays that this would be a reality. He actively goes to God and says, God, I know you're glorious. I know you're mighty. I know you're great. I know you're powerful. I know you're beautiful. But show it to me, God. Show it to me. I want to see it, God. My flesh wants to take other things in. So would you show yourself to be greater than all other things? How much would you say that you earnestly pray that you would fall more in love with Jesus? How much do you pray that you would behold the beauty and the majesty of God all day, every day. Friends, I am ashamed when I take an, in, uh, an inventory of my heart and see how little of this prayer captivates my heart. I'm afraid I assume way too much. And it's interesting then that David secondly says, one thing I've asked of the Lord, and this is another thing that I think that we 
often miss as much as maybe if not more than praying about it. He says that I will seek after. That word seek is a very important word. It ought to stick out to us. It's an active pursuit. It is a resolved commitment to follow in his ways. It is an attitude that says, I am willing to do whatever it takes to know Jesus, know his death for me, and know his love for me. I remember when I first met Julie, uh, there wasn't anything that I, was, that I wouldn't do in order to see her, to go out with her at some point. I hung on her every word. I pursued her halfway across the world when she spent six weeks in Toulouse, France by sending her a mixtape. It, um, it was when I went and, uh, and bought our engagement ring. And now it's been 18 years, since, uh, just about 18 years that we've been hanging out and doing life together. And it's still my goal to make sure that every day is, is as easy and as enjoyable for her as it possibly can be. For 18 years, I've been seeking her. And to my shame, I admit that I fail to seek Jesus with the amount of fervor I do for her. But I doubt that I'm alone. I think the modern church has become apathetic and lazy in our pursuit of God. Jesus has not been the center of our individual lives. He's rather been something that we just tack on to our life. He's just an accessory, an appendix in the back of the book. If we aren't too busy or tired, well, maybe we'll make it to church today. Oh, I've already made a decision to believe in Christ. Why would I go out of my way to come to Emmanuel early on a Sunday morning to attend Sunday school? When was the last time that you legitimately asked yourself, how can I grow in my faith and my love and my service of Jesus Christ? When was the last time you asked yourself or God in prayer, how can I help my spouse, my wife, my, uh, my children, my husband, whatever it is, how can I help them to know and love Jesus more? When was the last time that you actively pursued Jesus? The sad fact is, for many of us, we have never wondered how we can be pursuing Jesus more. We make a decision for Christ and it's one and done and that's it. We'll, we'll live our Christian lives just one day a week we'll go to church and pay in our time and, that, and that's it. The most import, this is the most important thing in life. And many of us are more content to log in and see what's new on Netflix. I know that life is busy. I get it. But this is not something that we can afford to neglect, friends. And dare I say it, it's not an issue of our schedules being too full. It's an issue of priority. 
you will make time for that which you love. Do an inventory of your schedule. And to David, one thing of all things in life he asked for, and he pursued with everything, was to be in the Lord's presence and to gaze upon his beauty. So we need to pursue Jesus. But third and finally, we ought to cry out to Jesus. We ought to cry out to Jesus. Verses 7 through 12 are really quite perplexing because they, they, they really seem sort of out of place with, with the rest of the psalm. In verses 1 through 6, David is this, this confident saint who can, who can go against anything. And then verse 7, he just seems like he does a complete 180. There's no assumption that God is on his side. No assumption that it's his light, his salvation, and his stronghold. Look at the various ways that he addresses God. Hear me. Be gracious to me. Answer me. Don't hide your face from me. Don't turn away in anger. Don't cast me off, and, and, and so on and so forth. This doesn't sound like a guy who is self-assured. This sounds like a guy who is desperate and unsure. This has led some commentators to argue that this wasn't part of the original psalm, that it was rather cut and pasted from some other psalm and inserted here. But anyone who's ever gone through something difficult in life can see what David's talking about here. One day you can be completely confident, right? Man, I can take on the world. Whatever I'm facing, no sweat, God's on my side. But then you wake up the next morning like, how am I going to get through this? I have no idea how I'm even going to get through the next hour, let alone the next week. God doesn't seem to be around for a while, and so it makes sense that intellectually we would say that we believe that the Lord is our light. We would believe that he's our salvation. We would believe that he is our stronghold. But practically, it seems like the batteries in the flashlight are dead. It's in those times that we need to cry out to the Lord, and it's totally appropriate to call out to the Lord as David does here and says, Lord, where are you at? Man, if there's sin in my life, show it to me and help me repent. I, I just don't keep silent. I need you. But there's one interesting thing that David utters here that changes the, the tone and gives us confidence when it feels hard to do so. In verse 9, he writes, Cast me not off, forsake me not. Now, if you consider the context that David operated in, he was the, the king of Israel. He's only the second king. There hadn't been very many before him. The only one that was before him, King Saul, uh, blew it, and God removed his spirit from him and forsook him. He ended up dying by suicide on a hilltop in battle. And though God had given David a promise in 2 Samuel 7, uh, in David's mind, there was no assurance that he was going to fare much better than King Saul. What if this particular screw-up is going to be the one by which God's spirit leaves him, and then it's all over? 
But praise the Lord that you and I, where we are right now in redemptive history, we no longer have to worry that God would forsake us. Why? Because Jesus was forsaken on our behalf. When Jesus was dying on the cross, he reached into another psalm that David had wrote. He quoted Psalm 22, when he said, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Matthew chapter 27. And indeed, God did. When he laid all the sins on those who would trust him on his, uh, in his person, Jesus was forsaken by God the Father. Now imagine the cosmic significance of that for just a moment. From eternity past, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit lived in perfect harmony and perfect union together. And yet here on the cross, the Father forsakes the Son. And it is as if the very nature of God is broken for a time. But Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave three days later, completely vindicated by the Father over sin and over death. And therefore now, when we trust in Christ, God applies Jesus' work to us. He got our sins. He got our unrighteousness. And through faith, we receive his goodness and all of his merits. We no longer need to worry about God forsaking us because he has told us through Christ, I will neither leave you nor forsake you. With that knowledge and life change, how can we not ask the Lord and seek after him that we may dwell in the house of the Lord and gaze upon the beauty, upon his beauty and inquire in his temple? Well, as we close out, we need to zero in on verse 14 because it's unlike any other verse in this entire psalm. He goes from describing his situation to becoming a counselor. He tells us, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds like it's coming from a guy that's been around the block a few times, who has experienced life in its hardships and also in its joys, and he knows and has learned the anecdote to, to, uh, to fear. His help has come from the Lord. He's lifted up his eyes to the hills and seen that. And now it's as if he is speaking directly to us. Think about it for just a moment. When you look at that verse in your Bible, think about it as God is talking to you personally. And he's saying, Wait on the Lord. Be strong. And let your heart take courage. Wait 
for the Lord. You know, I'm not sure what you've experienced in life that's made you the most fearful. I mean, really, it's different for, for all of us. But one thing that I do know is that in Christ, our life on earth here is to prepare ourselves for the most feared experience. Those last few moments of our breaths here on earth. And my guess is that it may instill some fear in some of us even just sitting here thinking about it. However, when we trust in Jesus, pursue him wholeheartedly, and call out to him, we have the antidote to fear. And if those things are true, then the Lord is our light and our salvation. Whom shall we fear? The Lord is the stronghold of our life. Of whom shall we be afraid? When we trust in him, verse 13 is ours. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. You can live free from fear of death, free from fear of the future when we trust in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Mora, Minnesota. For more content, be sure to subscribe. If you like what you've heard, consider partnering with us in our mission. Text the word, GIVE to 320-313-1950. 